Good morning. If you're here with us for the first time, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. It's a great joy to welcome you. And we are in the middle of a series we're doing called One Heart, One Mission. So again, if you're new with us, you couldn't have come at a better time because this is an opportunity for us to take a few Sundays together to talk about what God has uniquely commissioned this congregation to do in his great mission, the great narrative, the great story that is being written across history about Jesus' work through the gospel in all nations. And it's not some new vision. It's not some new mission. It's the same mission that Spanish River has had from the very beginning. Whether you were here 50 years ago or more when things began with Pastor David Nicholas or led forward by uh, Tommy Kiedis, we now are the heirs of this mission and this vision. We have some language which is different. That's um, understandable that we would use new language to describe what God has called us to do. But that clarification means that we're saying, okay, Lord, we know that you've given us, you've entrusted us with this mission of the gospel, and we're going to give ourselves to it. So we're going to put this mission statement up. We're going to read it together this morning just to remind ourselves. And there's a study guide that goes with this. You could pick it up on your way in, or some of you, both of you who brought it with you this morning um, from last week, um, there's a place to take notes in there as well uh, for, the, for the Sunday message. So we're going to be mostly over on uh, page 015 and 16 in that this morning. But uh, if you want to follow along or online as well. But let's put this mission statement up and let's read it aloud together. Be and, and this is because, because every person needs the Savior and a great church to call home. Spanish River Church will, let's say it together, bring the transforming life and love of Jesus to our members, neighbors, and the nations in every generation through the gospel in word and deed and sign. Well, today we want to talk about a culture of the gospel in the life of a congregation. And what I mean by a culture of the gospel is this. It's not just the truths about the gospel. We looked at that last week, being rooted in the gospel. But one of the things that the gospel does is it works through in our lives, personally and congregationally, is it creates a way of living. It creates its own culture. Every church has a particular culture. And there are churches, the best way I can put it to you is this, there are churches that are precisely correct about everything that they believe. And you could never question whether or not they were accurate in their doctrinal statements, but they are nevertheless mean-spirited. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you were in a church where people were correct, but they were cruel where people were right, but they were self-righteous. But the culture of the gospel comes to match the gospel message in a people who are being transformed by it, who know that they need a Savior, and they know that they are being delivered by Him. So what do I mean by a culture? Well, a culture is a manifestation externally of what people really believe. Not what they say they believe, but what they really believe. And cultures are unique. Churches all have different cultures, just like countries and nations and people have different cultures. And those, those differences, in certain ways, 
have to be honored. If you got on a jet this morning and flew from Miami over to London, you could decide that because you've spent the last 30 years driving on this side of the road, that when you get over there, you're going to keep driving on that side of the road, but it won't go especially well for you. When you leave the kingdom of darkness and move into the kingdom of light, when you transfer your allegiance to Jesus Christ and you're born again, when that occurs, you become part of a culture of the kingdom. And it takes a while to learn the culture. You go to a new culture, things are just different. Things are completely different than you may have imagined. And you have this opportunity to learn that new culture. And sometimes it can be quite shocking. Years ago when I was a pastor in Kentucky, I was asked to come over and preach at a large outdoor conference in the south of France. And I was like, yes, amen, I'll, I don't even need to pray about that, I'm going to France. So I fly over, I'm having a great time, it's just outside Toulouse, and I was staying in a guest house, but there was a family that was assigned to host me down at the site where this big Christian gathering was taking place. And so they want to make me feel at home. I went down there for my initial meal with this family, and they're grilling up burgers. And I'm about three bites in, and this guy looks at me and goes, well, uh, I hope you like horse. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> I'm from Kentucky. Okay. okay. <laughs> we race them, we bet on them, we don't eat them. And, and he saw me go eight shades of white right? You know, all the blood just drained out of my face. And you know how when you say something to try to make it better, but it just makes it worse, right? He looked at me and he said, well, well, it's not like it's a pony. <laughs> we, <laughs> we only eat them when they're old and they cannot run anymore. And I was like, oh, this is just the, and then he said, would you like another one? No, no, that's it. Totally different culture. You learn in this, like, you learn. Unless it says le boeuf on the menu, then that meat on your plate, you know, that could be equine with your wine. You're just, just a little cultural awareness going on. When you transfer into the kingdom of God, you're entering a kingdom of grace. But so often what we do is we bring along with us a kingdom of shame. We don't understand the radical transformation that takes place when God in his mercy and grace causes us to be born again to a living hope. And I want to read with you about that this morning in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And I want you to notice the words appearing. The word appear, okay? Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope here's that word again the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds in this text, that word appearing shows up twice, these dual epiphanies. First of all, he says the grace of God has appeared. Historically, God has come among us in Jesus Christ, and he has brought his grace. And that grace has appeared to deliver us from sin. Christ died on the cross for our sins. As we sang earlier, our debt is paid, our sin is taken away. God sent his son to destroy the works of the enemy, to deliver 
you and I who were bound in death and in sin, and he did that through Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross, shedding his blood in the full payment for our sin. But notice that the grace of God, which has appeared, bringing salvation, then has a role of teacher. The grace of God that has saved us now continues to teach us. Grace teaches us or trains us, it says in the ESV, to turn our back on ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for, here's the second appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we are looking for the return of Christ. We are a people with our eyes on the heavens looking for the return of Jesus Christ. So those dual epiphanies, those two poles are where, where we mark time and we live between those two appearings. The grace of God appearing that has saved us and the grace of God which will be revealed to us when Jesus returns and I can't wait for that day. But between those two days, grace comes to teach us how to live. Now, the reason I want to draw your attention to that, that grace is our instructor, is that more often than not, what happens in churches is not a culture of the gospel and grace creating transformation, but a culture of shame that seeks to create transformation. So ministers use guilt manipulation and shame in order to try to move people to do something that is right. But God never shames people. Christ never shames people. You will notice as you read through the Gospels that Jesus is continuously moving towards the people who everybody else is moving away from. And so the very people that are on the margins, the people that everyone else is turning their back on, these are exactly the people Jesus welcomes, Jesus moves towards, often the socially unacceptable, often the unloved, often the lonely, always the broken. And the people who are most virulent in their opposition to Jesus are the people who possess the capacity to shame others. You take the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. She is cast at Jesus' feet. We caught her. We caught her in the very act. By the way, where's the man? Where's the man who was? Because last time I checked, it took two for that dance. But they didn't bring him. They just brought her. And they were doing it not because they had any concern for her, but because they were trying to trap Jesus. And they wanted to trap him on the horns of this dilemma. He had said, be merciful. But now, here's this woman. They've caught her in the very act. Now, in order to have the death penalty exercised, by the way, according to any of those Old Testament laws, you had to have two or more witnesses. In other words, it couldn't be done just because there was suspicion of something happening. You actually had to see the act. You had to see it. So that means they had to set this up. This woman was set up. And then they throw her in front of Jesus. And what is the other horn of the dilemma? Well, Jesus has said that you have to be righteous and you have to be holy. 
And so where, where is he going to go with this? Is he going to fulfill the law of Moses and stoner? Or is he going to be merciful and forgiver and in that way deny the law? And Jesus knows they're trying to trap him, and the way they're trying to trap him is in a culture of shame that's around this woman. And he kneels down, and it says he, he writes in the dust. It doesn't tell us what he wrote. Maybe he wrote in the dust the names of all the women the other guys were chasing. I don't know. But he stood up, and having written in the dust, he said, let the person who's without sin cast the first stone. And of course, you know what happened. Everybody dropped their, their weapons and went away. And then he looked at her. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. How does Jesus handle people with sexual brokenness? People that religious folks are always trying to shame. How does he handle them? He handles them with tenderness. He never denies the truth of the scripture. He upholds the truth of the scripture, but he handles them with tender mercies. How many of you are glad that Jesus has always upheld the truth of the word of God in your life, but always handled you with mercy? You see, this is a culture of the gospel. This means that as a church, what happens to us is that we become a merciful people because you and I have received mercy. We are transformed personally. We are personally transformed by this grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. In other words, we have to go on being changed. We're not home yet. We're moving towards that day of Christ's appearing. But how are we changed? Are we changed by a minister standing at the front and shaming people and using guilt manipulation? Or are we changed by hearing the gospel and it transforms our heart? You see, what happens when the gospel is truly preached to us, Jesus becomes so beautiful and so compelling in our eyes that we begin to let go of all the other distractions and seductions that would take us away from him. You see, our hearts were made for intimacy. Our hearts were made for beauty. But the psalmist said, I'd rather spend one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand any, anywhere else. I want to dwell in that house and behold the beauty of the Lord. He said that, he wrote that, he sang that because he had seen something of the beauty of Jesus. Your heart was made for intimacy. Your heart and your eyes were made for beauty. The problem is... That the enemy comes along and he tries to substitute a lesser beauty, a lesser pleasure, a lesser intimacy and tell us that that's the thing our heart was made for. And we go towards it and then we discover that it, the very thing we thought would fulfill us ends up destroying us. But when you see the compelling beauty of Jesus and you, move, you, you see him and you see him moving towards you, your heart is caught with the beauty of who, who he is, then the the compelling power of this new attraction begins to drive out of you the addictions to the old pleasures you thought would help you and in fact will only kill you. What happens is the beauty of Jesus becomes so compelling that the old addictions 
begin to flee away. The task of ministers of the gospel is not to stand up here and tell you what not to do or what you must do because everybody's always trying to add to Jesus. But if you preach Christ and the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to people, then the beauty of who Jesus is will become so compelling, the grace of God so great in their lives that then all of the chains which have held them begin to fall away. That's what happens. That's a culture of the gospel. But we're used to a culture of shame. We shame our, shame on you, we say. (laughs) We do that in ministry. We shame people. We shame people in youth ministries. Shame people in children's ministries. I don't mean we. That never happens here. I'm talking about other churches somewhere else. (laughs) The royal we. Shame has no relationship whatever to the good news of Jesus. But when we do that with our children, when we shame them instead of offering Jesus to them, we may think that we're compelling them to do what is right, but in fact the shame only wounds them and trains them in the wrong direction. But when we present something beautiful to them, then they're able to see that beauty by the, by the grace of God and begin to move towards it. You and I are called away from a culture of shame and into a culture of the gospel. And you say, well, that's kind of dangerous. That just sounds a little bit like saying, you know, well, God just loves me as I am. So, so that's, that's it. Well, let me tell you something. God does love you as you are. He does love you as you are. I could go further and say God loves us despite how we are. That's actually more realistic. That's actually more accurate. God loves us as we are. But here's the thing about God. God not only loves you as you are, he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He is committed to your change. He's committed to your transformation. And so if you call yourself a Christian this morning, you can expect the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, to be at work in you, leading you towards shame. But that also means our congregation changes. So as a church, we have a congregation that is being transformed into a culture of grace. And I'll give you three areas of that really briefly this morning. Here's the first one, power. Power is the first one. And the world, power is expressed by some kind of achieved greatness, whether that's political power, economic power, academic power, social power. We hang our achievements on the wall. We show our achievements by where we live, and the the issue of power and greatness is deeply embedded in us because we were made for glory. Again, we were made for glory. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you take thought of him? Psalm 8. You have made him just a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. That glory has been vandalized. That glory has been spoiled by the fall and by sin, but down in our hearts, we know we were made for it. And so we keep struggling to go get the glory back. I want my glory. I want, the, I want everybody to know my achievements, whether those are professional or economic or political. I want the power. This was down in the hearts of the disciples. All the time they were having discussions among themselves. These are the disciples of Jesus. Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus would call them on it. They would be having this discussion about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus would go, what are you guys talking about? Oh, oh, um, Nothing. Uh, Kentucky versus Florida, nothing, really. (laughs) Nothing. Oh. 
Jesus said, here's greatness. Here's greatness. Greatness. Who's the greatest? The greatest among you will be the what? The servant of all. And so in the culture of the kingdom, greatness is expressed through service, through lowliness. Jesus said, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. You see, our pursuit of glory creates in us this constant busyness, this constant apprehension, this constant anxiety. Do I have enough? Do people see me in the right ways? But Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke on you and you learn of me. Listen to this, for I am meek, this is Jesus talking about himself, I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, meekness is not a word which is in our vocabularies very frequently. And in fact, meekness, it's unfortunate, it sounds like weakness. Meekness and weakness. But, and and we're, we're so accustomed to thinking of it in those terms, you would never, if you were a guy, introduce one of your friends, hey, here's Jim, he is so meek. And you would never say that at the gym. That was an excellent, that was an excellent deadlift. That was meek. You would never use that term. That's because we misunderstand the term. Jesus said he was meek. The Bible says the meekest man in the whole world, in the Old Testament, was Moses. Meekest man on the earth was Moses. Moses wasn't weak. Especially he had that staff moving around. He started swinging that staff. You want to duck, let me tell you. He was not weak, but he was meek. And this word meek is an ancient word that was used of a large horse, very powerful, that had been trained for battle. Its power had been harnessed. And once the horse that was wild, a 2,000-pound animal that was powerful and strong, once that power and strength had been harnessed and trained and it was ready to go into battle, that horse had been, here's the term, the horse had been meeked. What is meekness? It is power that has been harnessed for greatness. What does power look like in a Christian culture? It doesn't look like, look at me. It looks at, I'm under the yoke of Jesus, and everything in me is now being trained for service to him. Who's the greatest among you? Those who would be what? The servant of all. That's power. It's a different view of power. Churches that are always trying to be the best. We're the best church. We're the greatest church. Or churches where you have celebrity pastors. He's the best pastor. And guys who, guys, there are guys in the ministry who are always trying to build their platform and build their brand. Platforms are for diving and brands are for cows. Come on. We're not here to get famous. We're here to make Jesus famous. That's what we're about. All right, here's the second thing. Possessions. Possessions. So power, different view. Possessions, different view. Grace creates a different view of possessions. And you can see this in 2 Corinthians 8. I want to read this for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is talking about a church in Macedonia that was impoverished. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality. 
generosity. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their own accord. Now, let me just stop right there for a second. This is a, an offering that Paul's talking about, which is, which is for impoverished Christians in Judea, and he's been collecting this offering in the Gentile churches. And he talks about these Macedonian believers who had very, very little. They were not wealthy. They were an impoverished group of people. But what were they rich in? They were rich in generosity. And so Paul says these, these people had generosity. And what was it? What was it that caused their generosity? Was Paul shaming them? Did Paul guilt them into it? No. What happened in their hearts? Something happened down in their hearts. Jesus had come to them. The grace of God had created a generosity, a wealth of generosity in them. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4, look at this next phrase, begging us earnestly for the favor of participating in the relief of others. I want you to notice that word begging. We are going to be a church that's all about begging. Some of you are visiting with us today, and even some of you members are thinking, this could be my last Sunday right now, right here, this could be it. But let me, let, me, let me just tell you, though, the way it's going to work. You will never, ever hear me or anyone else stand up here in this, on this platform or at this pulpit and beg you for anything except to be reconciled to God. Paul said, I beg you to be reconciled to God. But he never begged anybody for any gift ever, any time. Here's what happened. The grace of God so got a hold of people that they begged so that they could participate in the gifts and in the giving. They became the beggars. We want to be part of this. And that's been the story here at Spanish River since its very beginning. You guys have constantly given. You've given to support church planting going on all over the world. You've given to support the work of the gospel here at home. You've given to support people who are broken and in need. Just recently, you collected thousands of dollars for the work in Haiti. And you gave it to people who have just been through a terrible disaster. You constantly show generosity. What shows generosity? It's every single member, every single one of us, having discovered how generous God has been with us. And so this gives us an entirely different attitude towards our possessions. Our possessions do not become what define us. Our possessions become treasures that grace can lay hold of and use for others. That is a beautiful way to live. And by the way, that's what happens to every single one of our members. Every single one of our members experience the grace of God so that we take a new attitude towards not only power, but possessions. Here's the last thing. A whole new attitude towards people. A whole new attitude towards people. In Titus 2, if you look back there, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in the present evil age, looking for the appearing again of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us to redeem us and make us to be a people, a people. Not just a collection of individuals, but a united people, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. No one is saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And no one is saved to remain solitary. We are saved out of our solitude into a community, a people. What does that community look like? Well, this morning, 
There's Portuguese language translation, simultaneous translation going on. There's Spanish language translation going on. There are Haitians among us. There are Jamaicans. There's all kinds of cultures. New family from Poland was in the service Saturday night. Another new family from Colombia. Have you noticed that this is a cosmopolitan area? Have we noticed that this is a cosmopolitan congregation? This is a multicultural congregation with a single heart. And that multicultural aspect of the kingdom is absolutely critical. Because the world that we're living in right now is trying to create factions and divisions and pull us apart along the lines that traditionally have worked for dark forces. The Greek word for devil means the divider. The divider. But God's people who experience grace suddenly find out that they are delivered from their tribalism and they become part of a united people. And these united people are not defined anymore by their socioeconomic status. They're not defined by their ethnicity. They're not defined by their, their national citizenship. They're not defined by the culture of their birth. They've been birthed, rebirthed into a culture of the kingdom that is united. And this has always been true when it comes to the people of God as the gospel began to spread around the world. There was an ancient city called Antioch. Antioch was one of the great cities of the ancient world. And there were people there from all over the world, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Near East and from Europe, and these people did not get along well. And of course, like all ancient cities, it had a great wall around it. But those people did not get along and so that city not only had a great wall around it, it had several walls within it. So that those folks basically lived in ghettos. They had their ethnicities and they had these walls that divided them to make sure that they didn't cross over. They were a divided people. But then the gospel of grace came to that city. And when the gospel of Jesus came to that city, something incredible happened. You read about their leadership team in Acts 13. Listen to this description of their leadership team. There was Saul of Tarsus, Paul the apostle. Tarsus is from what we would call Turkey, so a Turkic man. And then Barnabas, who was a Jewish man from the Jerusalem area. And then there were people from what we would call now Libya. And then there was Simeon, who was called Niger. So he's a black man from the black parts of Africa. And so and then we've got people from Northern Europe as well, and they're all part of this leadership team. In other words, people had broken down the walls. The church was actually made up of people that formerly were enemies, and now because of Jesus had become united friends. And here's what's very interesting about that. It says in Acts chapter 11, about the church at Antioch, this is where the disciples were first called Christians. We didn't, invite, we didn't invent the name Christian. Christian is what the world began to call these people. These people who had broken down the walls. These people who had begun to come together. What are the things that divide us now? You see, our mission statement says every nation, every generation... It's not just national identities which divide people or ethnicities or economic status. It's generations too. 
And so there's always this kind of attitude among the young towards the older, okay, boomer. And kids tend to, I mean, you know, they, they don't get us. I know we're a little, I mean, my, my daughter a few years ago, my youngest daughter, she's always prophesying to me. And she said, she said to me, Dad, Dad, when you were a kid, uh, your ice skates, did they, did, did, did they have metal blades or wood blades? You know, I'm like, really, really? Like, yeah, I was skating just, be, just before the Bronze Age, you know. That's, that's when I was a kid. But older people, too, they can look down on young people. And they can go, what do you know? You know, what do you know? Back when I was a kid, we walked uphill in the snow and downhill in the snow. We walked uphill both ways to school. You don't have any trouble like I've had trouble. Well, you know what? I find with the younger generation today, younger generation, older generation, they all need each other. They all need each other. They need the zeal. They need the passion. They need the wisdom. We all need each other. And all the ethnicities, all of these, we're all needed together. Because let me, let me just explain this to you. In heaven, you don't lose your color. And you don't lose your ethnicity. You don't lose that birth culture. It says in heaven, I looked around the throne and there were people from what? Every, every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation under heaven. We're all there around the throne of God looking like Joseph's multicolored coat. You don't lose it. It's redeemed. It's no good saying you're colorblind. You got to be color appreciative. You got to look at people and go, look at you. You are glorious. You look like the image of Jesus, and I need you in my life. You're different from me. I need you. And we see it on earth because how do we pray? Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth. Finish it as it is in heaven. The worship around the throne of Jesus Christ is a multicultural worship with a single-hearted devotion. My friends, everything changes in the culture of the gospel. We change personally. And then our attitude to power, our attitude to possessions, and our attitude to other people, it all begins to change. We discover that we can be servants rather than trying to be great. We discover that rather than being people who are constantly trying to acquire, we can be people who give. And we discover that rather than pushing people away, you've never met a person you don't need. And together, with one heart and one voice, we can give glory to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you so do that work among us that all the old divisions, divisions over social status, divisions over race, divisions over politics, divisions over generations, all of those walls would be knocked down and we would gather around the throne of heaven to give glory to Jesus. Lord, would you create in us servant hearts? Would you create in us, Lord, an attitude of gratitude for all you've given us so that we begin to be people who are generous because you've been so generous with us? And all these things, Lord, we ask because Jesus gave his life for us at the cross and has poured into us the riches of his grace. We long for his appearing. Amen and amen.